0: Welcome to the program this morning. It's great to have you with us. The message that you're going to hear this morning is actually taken from our Easter service this year. I realize that it's not Easter today but I hope that you'll still find this message uh, very relevant and very challenging to you. It's really come out of a personal journey that I've been on I guess. Last year I had the opportunity to travel to Israel for a couple of weeks on a study tour and I spent a full week of that time in and around the old city of Jerusalem. Just a fascinating, complex, ancient city with, with so much diversity and so much deep, embedded religious interest in that city. It really puts things in perspective for you. In New Zealand, you know, if something's old, it's like 18th century. In Israel, if something's old, it's 5000 BC. It just puts history in perspective straight up for you. One of the days that we were there in Jerusalem. Our tour guide, who was a Palestinian guy, led us on a tour, a walk of the Via Dolorosa. The Via Dolorosa literally means the way of suffering. And it's the traditional path, and of course nobody knows for sure, but it's the the traditional path believed to be the route that Jesus walked from his trial before Pilate, the Roman procurator, the Roman governor at the time, through to his execution on Golgotha, that road that he took and you are walking down this road before we left our tour guide said to us get your wallets get your passports get anything that is loose and attach it to your body don't just leave a bag slung over your shoulders literally carry it with you and secure it to your body somehow and you're wondering sort of why this is until you take off down the road and start to realize that much of the inner city jerusalem streets along which the via dolorosa weaves its way are lined with street merchants. And these guys, I mean, they don't hold back. These are not passive salespeople. They are out there haggling with you as soon as they see you coming. They're out there bargaining. They're out there waving goods and merchandise in front of your face, trying to get a sale. And here I am trying to have this meditative, contemplative experience on the Via Dolorosa and appreciate the sufferings of Christ. And I've got the stench of some Jerusalem butchery uh, offending uh, my sensibilities. These tiny little cobbled streets waving, weaving their way through Jerusalem, past all of these marketplaces. And finally we arrive at the end point, which of course is the site believed to be, again it's, it's speculative at best, but believed to be the site that Jesus was actually crucified and then resurrected. You look at this place today, it is nothing like it would have looked 2,000 years ago what was once a stone rock quarry called Golgotha is today this monstrous extravagantly lavish church called the church of the holy sepulchre even to say that church is to get saliva everywhere but this thing is just the most impressive structure inside and out that you've ever seen and you walk inside and immediately i'm struck by the contrast It's just light and dark. The ordinariness of the Jerusalem streets outside suddenly gives way to this just crowds and crowds and crowds of people inside, pilgrims who had come from all over, literally all over the earth to see what is inside this church. The whole place is very dimly lit, many different chapels and cathedrals within the church. There are candles burning, there's incense, there are shrines and Madonna statues and artwork and extravagant architecture all over the place. On the second floor, as you walk up the stairs, there's another huge crowd of people, a massive queue of people waiting to stick their hand through a hole in the floor and touch what is believed to be the actual rock of Golgotha upon which Jesus was crucified, the rock on which the cross itself stood. This is probably the most intensely religious environment that I've ever been in in my life. And to be honest with you, it made me feel pretty sick. And I'm supposed to be a pastor, you know. I'm supposed to be a church guy, and here I am, just feeling intensely disappointed. I mean, the experience, the trip, even the visit to the church was unbelievable and incredible. I'd recommend it to everyone. And yet as you're standing in that place, I'm struck by a sense of sadness, I'm struck by a sense of disappointment, that all of these people, perhaps including me, would come halfway around the world to reach your hand through a hole in the floor and touch a bit of rock. And and to what end? for what purpose i mean what is this achieving how does it change the way you or i are actually going to live tomorrow and this has got me thinking it's got me speculating and asking a lot of questions that perhaps previously i wasn't asking and so the message that you're about to see really comes out of that personal journey that i've been on about asking the question where does the easter story specifically the events of christ's death jesus death and resurrection where does all this actually intersect my life because it's so easy i think for easter just to become wrapped up and enshrined in layers of religious tradition just to become so churchified and so lost to history and to an expression of medieval christianity that we lose its relevance for us today at what point does the easter story the story of jesus dying and rising become our story and i believe there is such a point And i believe it has profound implications for your life and for my life today i hope you enjoy the message this morning i want to begin by reading some verses from the bible Uh, with you if you have a bible you can uh, follow along if you don't that's fine we've got the words on the screen i know some of you might be a bit funny with the bible i don't know some of you here might be i don't know about this bible thing that's cool you can just appreciate this This as great ancient literature all right revelation chapter 21 right 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 at the end of the whole the second to last chapter of the bible here and this is not really uh, one of like the classic easter texts it's not the one about jesus dying or being raised again from the dead it's a little bit different i'm going to try and show you how this connects to everything revelation 21 then i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea i saw the holy city the new jerusalem He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Part of the reason I read that out is because it really doesn't matter whether you're a Christian, an atheist, agnostic, Buddhist, Hindu, whatever. Everybody wants this, right? Right? I mean, you read something like that. There's nobody, I imagine, sitting in this room who reads an account like this and says, you know, a world without death or mourning or crying or pain. No thanks. You know, everybody. there is something in this that stirs deep within the human soul, I think. There is something captivating about this picture, a picture of a world beyond the struggles of the life that we now face, beyond the trials that you and I are going through right now, a world without death and dying, mourning, crying and pain. There's something in that that is deeply captivating, I think, to us, deeply fascinating. And part of the reason, of course, is because it's so different to the world we experience now. It's so different to the life that we lead now, where these words, and they have sort of a sting in them, don't they? Even just to say them is to cringe, death, mourning, crying, pain. It's pretty easy to, I think, sit in church on Easter Sunday and we put on a happy face and it's a great day and we celebrate and so on. And yet it's quite easy, to, I think, to mask the struggles that we may be going through even now. Perhaps one of these words, even now, is something that you are facing, that you are dealing with death, mourning, crying, pain. Something in there about what it means to be human, our, our humanness, our finiteness, something in there that captures the difficulty of life as we now experience it. It's tough, it's hard, and so when we hear about this possibility of a place, of a world, of an existence where where God would wipe away every tear from our eye, a place beyond death, mourning, crying, and pain, we're drawn to it, aren't we? We're lured to it. We want to believe, we want to hope that perhaps one day such a world could exist because as we look around us, it's sure not the world in which we live now. Just to give you one example. You know, regardless of what you've thought of this whole debate that's going on at the moment with the smacking bill going through Parliament, hasn't it highlighted to us just the appalling child abuse statistics in New Zealand? I mean, when you hear that it's estimated one child every five months dies of physical abuse, isn't there something in you that just rises up and condemns that? Isn't there something in our, I think this binds us together, isn't there something in the human heart that just rises up at the thought of that and denounces it and says that is not the way it's supposed to be. That is not the kind of world that we're supposed to have. It's supposed to be different. It's supposed to be better. How do we get ourselves into this mess? And here's the tricky part of this. Here's where this gets a little bit more sensitive, a little bit closer to home, because the reality ultimately is this. The problem is not out there somewhere. The problem is not out there in some foreign land, some foreign person, some foreign institution of power structures somewhere beyond us. Ultimately the problem that we are facing in our world and in our lives stems right back to the condition of the human heart. Ultimately we are the problem. We are what's wrong with the world. Earlier in the 20th century, there was a distinguished newspaper in the UK called The Times, it's still running I think, and the editor of this newspaper invited several prominent writers throughout the UK to submit essays on the title, on the theme, What's Wrong with the World? And uh, many of you have heard of G.K. Chesterton, famous British writer. He was one of those invited to send in an essay, and his took the form of a simple letter in which he wrote, Dear Sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> What's wrong with the world? I am. You know, there's something true about that, isn't there? There's something quite humble about being able to acknowledge ultimately the problem is really with us. We can't look at anyone else. We can't blame anyone else. It's a disease that runs right through the human heart. The comedian Jack Handy says this. I think it captures the sentiment. He says, I can picture in my mind a world without war, a world without hate, and I can picture us attacking that world because they'd never expect it. (laughs) That's the double-edged sword, see, of human nature on the one hand we want to condemn atrocity we want to condemn violence and injustice on the other hand we find there's this ugly selfish streak that runs right through the human heart and we're not quite sure what to do about it and friends that is quite simply the idea that the bible calls sin and that word has got a lot of bad press in recent times it's acquired quite a huge amount of ugly baggage and we kind of think sin is like this archaic idea of breaking just a set of outdated rules somewhere and just getting checks and crosses beside our name that's actually far from the heart of the biblical idea of sin. It's actually a very relational idea. It's a very relational idea, and sin simply captures the reality that at the heart of the world's problems, at the heart of our problems, at the heart of the human dilemma, is the reality that you and I have rejected relationship with God. You and I have held God at arm's length, and we have resisted acknowledging him. We have resisted entering into the relationship with him that he desires to have with us. That's basically what sin is. It's a breakdown in that vertical relationship between you and God, between me and God. And I think for most Kiwis, this may be true of you, a lot of the time this just takes the form of ignoring God, doesn't it? Because you're busy. You know, you've got bills to pay, you've got kids to sort out, you've got a car to run, you've got deadlines at work, you've got a boss breathing down your neck, you've got the house to clean up. Who has time? to think about God. Who has time in the 21st century in New Zealand, Auckland, New Zealand, to start thinking about these matters of eternal significance? We don't because we're just so bogged down in everyday life. We're just running to make ends meet, just to live, just to keep up, maybe until you get to church on Easter Sunday. And then perhaps some of these issues start taking on some clarity maybe that they haven't had for a little while. And we start to realize that ultimately what's wrong with the world reflects what's wrong with us this problem of sin buried deep in the human heart that because we've gotten ourselves out of sync with god as a result we've gotten ourselves out of sync with each other that where that vertical relationships become severed the horizontal relationships between person and person brother sister friend friend become fractured and this ripples out into a breakdown of relationships between people groups, cultural groups, ultimately nations. All of this stems back to the idea of sin that we have chosen to keep God at bay. We've chosen to keep out of a relationship with Him. And that, my friends, has prevented us from seeing the fulfillment of this kind of picture that Revelation 21 talks about. It's that disease of sin that's kept this from becoming a reality. So that is... All right, take a breath, okay? It's been intense, I know. <clears throat> Take a breath. Everyone okay? We're still tracking? Still on the same? That was Act 1. Okay? That was, that was the bad news. All right? You can't leave it there, can you? Really? You didn't come to church on Easter Sunday to hear that, did you? That would be like leaving it at the end of an episode of Lost. You know? <laughs> you, can, well, you know, well, you're just sitting there thinking, what? <laughs> you, know, you Tell me you're not going to end it there. That's, you know, the Easter story, thankfully, doesn't end it there. And what we celebrate today on Resurrection Sunday is precisely the fact that God Himself has initiated a solution to this problem that we face. And He did it not in some abstract, theoretical, intellectual way. He did it in a way that was deeply personal. By Himself entering into the experience of becoming human. This is exactly what God did 2,000 years ago when He broke into our world, when He entered time and space, when he left his home in heaven and came down to this filthy, dirty, environmentally challenged, sin-infested world that we call planet Earth and entered the experience of being human. And this is the God that we encounter in Jesus of Nazareth. This is the God that took on flesh and blood. And I'll tell you, it's quite easy when you are standing in the church of the Holy Sepulchre to imagine that Jesus was somehow some kind of mythological figure that levitated a few inches off the ground and had a halo behind his head and just wasn't quite human. Maybe he appeared to be, but surely he wasn't really. You know, the Jesus of history, the Jesus a lot of the time I think of religion, has painted us a very separate picture from what this man from Galilee was like when he walked on this earth. Because much as he was the embodiment of God on earth, he was also completely human. Jesus had facial hair and fingernails. He might have had pimples when he was a boy. The girl next door might have had a crush on him. He might have been colorblind. This is Jesus, earthy, flesh and bone Jesus, completely human. Read that poem that you got given this morning. It's a picture of the earthly Jesus. It's a picture of the man Jesus entering into all of the experiences that we have, even to the point of entering into the very lowest and most painful of human experiences, suffering and death. And this is what you see depicted in a film like The Passion, that grotesque crucifixion where Jesus was led away and executed by the the Roman government of the day. And yet I think what's easy when you look at a movie like that is to imagine that the special and unique thing about Jesus' death was his crucifixion. Because that's what strikes us, because we're human beings and we're drawn to these sensory images. It's grotesque, it's horrific, it's inhumane. And it was, it was one of the cruelest forms of state execution history has ever produced. And yet that's not what is unique about Jesus of Nazareth. That is not what's unique about Easter. That's not what's unique about death. Because if you read Roman history, you'll realize the Romans did this to thousands of people. Tens of thousands of people died the same way Jesus died, nailed to a cross, some even worse. What worse? One of his mates died crucified upside down. It wasn't the fact that Jesus was crucified that made his crucifixion unique. What was different about it was what happened in the spiritual realm as Jesus hung on that cross for those few long hours that Friday afternoon. Because as God in the form of Jesus... Hung on that cross, dying, breathing his last breath. He took upon himself everything that is wrong with this world. And don't hear by that everything that's wrong with the world out there somewhere nameless faces, abstract wars, those kinds of things. No, everything that's wrong with you and with me our sin, all of our failures, all of my shortcomings. All of your failure to live up to even your own expectations at times. All of your insecurities. All of your neuroses. All of your hidden past. All of your uncertain future. All those unmet expectations that you had for your life. All those unrealized ambitions, those shattered dreams. All those broken relationships that that checkered background that you have, those personal hidden demons that you wouldn't even utter to another single person, those struggles and trials that you came into church with this morning and are burdened with even now. Jesus took it on himself on the cross. God took all of that upon himself, our fears and our failures and our anxieties, our sin, our rejection of God, and he died to bring an end to it. He died to free us from it. He died to make it possible for you and I to experience something different than that. He died to make it possible for us to be freed from all that, to have a new start, to have a fresh start, to have not just a, not just a clean slate, but a new slate entirely, to have a fresh beginning, free from all those things that hold us back from relationship with God. And then after Jesus had died that, Sunday, that Friday, on Sunday morning a few of his followers came to his tomb to embalm his body with some spices and they found his body had gone. He'd been raised from the dead. Jesus was risen. And the tomb is empty. And that's why neither James Cameron nor anyone else is ever going to find an ossuary, a bone box, with the bones of that Jesus inside it. Because they're not there. They're not there to be discovered. Jesus is risen. He's resurrected bodily, resurrected. And that, friends, changes everything. And see, this is where it all comes together. If, if you take the world that we live in today as a kind of a winter, a kind of a wintry experience, a wintry condition, if you take this picture that I read out in Revelation 21 as a distant summer, somewhere on the horizon, seemingly unreachable, at that moment that Jesus was raised from the dead on Easter Sunday morning, spring began. You see? Spring began. The first blossom of spring broke through into a wintry world as a sign that summer is on its way. Summer is coming. And here, friends, is where Easter takes its true significance. It's not simply about you and I finding some sort of personal redemption from our sin, although that is certainly foundational to it. It's not simply about you and I being freed to have a personal relationship with Christ. It's about God restoring the world It's about God putting the world to rights. God bringing creation, this world, back into harmony with Himself and recreating this type of picture that we read about in Revelation 21. And when Jesus was raised from the dead on Easter Sunday morning, this glorious picture of a new creation, a new world without death, mourning, crying and pain, it came rushing forward to meet the present and intersect with time and with space in a real world. God's future broke into the present with this explosive force and gave us the small glimpse, but the most enticing, the most tempting glimpse into what the future will one day certainly be. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is our guarantee that God one day will make this picture in Revelation 21 a reality. Not out there somewhere, not in some distant spiritual plane, but right here on this planet, on this earth, a renewed creation and a restored world. And here's where Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday come together. See, in order for us to enter into this new future that God is creating because of what happened on Easter Sunday, We need to deal with the reality of sin that happened on Good Friday. In order to be a part of this new life that God offers us because of Christ being raised from the dead, we need to confront head-on what happened on Good Friday and be transformed through that experience. We need to confront the ugly reality that on Good Friday, Christ died for our sin, and that requires us now to undergo a personal transformation where just as Christ died for all of that, we go through a type of dying in our own life. We go through a type of separating ourselves from that old way of life, that old life that was far from God, that old life that was caught up in sin, that old life that was so separated from Him. We go through that Good Friday experience of dying to that in order that we might be raised again figuratively with Christ on Easter Sunday morning. Listen again to this quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, God in the Dock. I have to warn you, by the way, just before I read this, there's a word in here I didn't understand. It's the word crocus or crocus. Does anybody even know? It's apparently like a flowering plant. You know this, Gary, don't you? It's a flowering plant. You know, all of you horticulturalists out there. So when you strike this word, don't let it trip you up. That's simply what it's saying. A man really ought to say the resurrection happened 2,000 years ago in the same spirit in which he says, I saw a crocus yesterday because we know what is coming behind the crocus. The spring comes slowly down this way, but the great thing is that the corner has been turned. There is, of course, this difference that in the natural spring the crocus cannot choose whether it will respond or not. We can. We have the power either of withstanding the spring and sinking back into the cosmic winter, or of going on into those high midsummer pomps. Don't you love that? Those high mids this is so British, those high midsummer pomps in which our leader, the Son of Man, already dwells and to which he is calling us. It remains with us to follow or not, to die in this winter or to go on into that spring and that summer. And friends, that is the choice that each one of us are faced with this morning. Are we going to remain in this winter? Are we going to remain in this condition of being alienated from God, being part of this present wintry condition that the world is in? Or are we going to step into the future that God is already preparing us? That doesn't mean the world is just getting better and better and better and better now until Christ returns as if we're going to create some sort of utopian paradise. That's not what it's about. But it's that we now have a foretaste. We now have the down payment the deposit, the guarantee that God is rebuilding a glorious future. And we can be a part of that as we undergo this personal Easter experience of dying and then rising again to a new life. And all that may sound quite mysterious, but friends, it really just gets very personal and very practical. And it begins with us simply starting to get honest with God. Maybe this is what you need to do this morning. Just start getting honest with God. It's so easy to ignore them. It's so easy to push all this aside, go back to your life, go back to the old stuff, just live, get by, pay the bills, do your thing. But perhaps this morning, God is giving you clarity into some things that you need to act on. And perhaps for you this morning, the first step is simply coming to God and starting to be honest with it. Being big enough to own up to who we really are before God. Being big enough to confront the sin in our own lives and say to Him, God, I'm sorry. I've messed up. I've blown it. I've screwed up. I can't do this on my own. I can't just get by. Even if you're happy living and you feel like you've got the most immaculate life, there's an emptiness and there's a futility to that that you may even sense as you sit here now. And it begins as we come and own that before God and say, God, I just can't do it. I need you. I've severed this relationship with you and I need it. It's essential. And allowing God to forgive us for that and recreate in us a new heart, give us a new beginning where He comes and dwells with us and within us and becomes the authority in our life. It means stepping back into relationship with him. And friends, I've got to tell you, God is not here. I know the stereotypes, I know the perceptions that may even be in your mind this morning of the kind of God you think you're dealing with. Some God who's standing here with his arms folded and a scowl across his face just waiting to condemn you, waiting to tick and cross some scorecard that he's got. You know that God-like figure that is a judge just waiting to rebuke you, waiting to punish you, waiting to give you some massive cosmic telling off when you come to him. Friends, that is not the God we're dealing with. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God of Easter. God is a loving heavenly father who this morning is desperately searching for his lost son, his lost daughter, calling out their name and standing here in the hope that perhaps today may be the day they come back, standing here with his arms outstretched, ready not to judge, but to embrace, ready not to condemn, but to comfort and to heal and to restore and to renew and to draw us into this new creation that he is bringing about right here on earth. Friends, that is the type of transformation that Easter requires of us. And that is where Easter becomes very personal. And the story of what happened to Christ 2,000 years ago comes rushing into the present and confronts each of us with that question, what are we going to do with Jesus Christ? Are we going to remain in winter or are we going to go on into spring, into summer? I want you to keep thinking about that. It's very easy to write Easter off as a fairy tale, some myth, some story that has nothing to do with my life but what if friends it's real what if in what happened on the cross and in the empty tomb has life-giving power what if it really is the answer what if there's hope there beyond anything that you've dreamed of hoping for what if it's the truth what if it's real i want you to keep letting that rattling around in your mind soaking it up searching asking yourself those questions